show you what I have on here so that you will know that I am indeed from Washington, D.C. That, that's the uniform for Washington, okay? Afterwards, afterwards. <clears throat> How often have you wanted to uh, have an opportunity to see whether or not in a real-world situation the kind of career or calling that you think the Lord has for you uh, is verified? That you want to have that experience to see whether or not that's really what you want to do and what the Lord is calling you to do. The American Studies Program, your Washington campus, and the campus in Central America, San Jose, Costa Rica, provides you those kinds of opportunities uh, to leave uh, the joys of the home campus for one semester and to go to Washington or to Central America and to be involved in kinds of experiences that help us begin to understand more concretely what it means to be Christians, faithful Christians in the world. The American Studies program began in 1976, has two parts to it, where we study issues facing our culture from a biblical perspective, which also gives you an opportunity to have a part-time internship working 25 hours a week in the area of your choice. And to, together, as we look at both issues facing our culture and as we are active in the marketplace, be able to be challenged by the community of scholars and of students that are there to see what difference Christ makes. What difference it makes that we've been called to a particular area of brokenness in this world as ministers of Christ, whatever that might be. In law, inner city ministry, the fine arts, in business and labor, in politics, in science, whatever field it appears that God is calling you to. We need to start thinking biblically and Christianly about that. Because we're not simply there to make money. We're there to be ministers of healing and wholeness in a broken world. So these internships provide you an opportunity in a real-world setting to begin to see what that looks like and to verify that calling that the Holy Spirit is sort of nudging around in your heart about where he wants you to be spending your life in the kingdom. So <clears throat> I urge you to take advantage of your uh, campus in Washington and also to consider uh, opportunity of going to Latin America, those of you who are interested in missions in the third world or some kind of service in the third world. Uh, I'd recommend to you the, uh, your own uh, Costa Rican campus that begins for the first time this fall. All the application forms and such are in Dr. Stead's office, and uh, further information is there. I just want to urge you to uh, consider those as being a part, take one semester as a part of your academic career here at the Master's College. In fact, as I told a class earlier this morning, if you don't have at least one semester off campus, then when you walk across this stage or wherever it is you have your commencement, you give that diploma, you give that, uh, that diploma back to uh, Dr. MacArthur and you say, I'm not taking it until I've had an off-campus experience. 
Because sisters and brother, you ain't educated until you've got some kind of off-campus experience. You're cheating yourself unless you uh, take advantage of the opportunities available to you. I don't know if any of you saw the, uh, the movie Killing Fields. It's not the kind of movie you go to when you want to have a light, entertaining evening. But it's about the uh, Khmer Rouge revolt and uh, war in Cambodia. There's a particular scene that struck me. There's a major in the Khmer Rouge, the communist army, who, because of his love for his country, joined the Khmer Rouge as a young man, had worked his way up to be a major. But now all around him, in the midst of the revolution, he sees sort of an ideology run wild. People being uh, herded into concentration camps, people being shot simply because their parents happened to be middle class or they were educated out of the country. The violence all around him, the destruction of the killing fields of Cambodia. In one scene, he, his wife has been killed and all he has left is his son. And he gives his son into the care of one of the heroes and says to that man, well, maybe I can help stop some of the killing. Right outside his uh, door, there was a private in the Khmer Rouge army with a weapon. He was about ready to uh, kill two women who were tied up and kneeling by a ditch. And he was going to shoot them and they were going to fall into the ditch. And so he went up to them and he said, uh, stop. The private turned around and said, I'm under orders from that lieutenant over there to kill these people. So the major walked over to the lieutenant and he said, Lieutenant, we must stop the killing. The lieutenant raised his pistol and shot him right in the head. The self-destruction of an ideology and even a love of nation has gone to seed, gone wild. I think that uh, illustrates, unfortunately, what our evangelical movement is doing to itself today. You see, 30 years ago, we were a despised subculture in America. If you were a born-again Christian, you were uh, thought to be a hick or uh, relegated to uh, some back country someplace, uneducated, ignorant. But things have changed. We've come a long way, baby. Hey, now it's cool to be born again, right? I mean, it's cool. We are in. I mean, everybody from the president to the prince say they're born again. And I think uh, one of the problems of becoming popular is we get co-opted. The culture begins to shape who we are. We begin to buy into the spirits of the age. So uh, whether it's Jim Wallace fighting Pat Robertson over Nicaragua or Bill Bright fighting with Jay Kessler over Tony Campolo <laughs> or Frankie Schaefer fighting with everybody else over abortion. We are at war with each other as an evangelical movement. We are killing each other, destroying each other's character, personalities, reputations. Why? 
perhaps there are many reasons, but it seems to me uh, that there are two spirits that have gripped us. They're powerful in our culture and they've begun to grip our movement. The spirit of ideology and the spirit of nation. I had a friend once who uh, was asked to go to lunch by a brother who, in the Lord, who had a totally different ideological persuasion politically from him. They wanted to talk about their relationship and whether or not they could continue to uh, love each other, communicate, despite their political differences. It was a good lunch. I think it was positive in terms of trying to cut through some of the stuff that often divide us. But the telling point was when the friend returned to his place of business, which was with a Christian organization in Washington, one of our many political active organizations nowadays. And his boss asked him, why did you go to lunch with that guy? I mean, you know where he stands. You can't trust him. Ideology. Shaping the relationship among Christians. My boss recently wrote an article for Christianity Today on the issue in Nicaragua. And he was critical of uh, 36 years of American history in Nicaragua when we had the Marines there. He was critical of the Sandinista government for its oppression of religion and freedom of expression in the press and association. And he was critical of the Contras, which our president is now seeking $100 million for, uh, for their use of violence and indiscriminate killing to upset the uh, culture and the economy of that country. In other words, he was uh, sort of critical about everybody. And he made one point, and his point was, we often consider our national interest before the word of God when it comes to thinking about these political issues. It breaks my heart to have to say to you that many Christian organizations in Washington, D.C. have since that appeared in Christianity Today refused to talk to my boss because he dared question our national interest, the president's policies. Politics determining how we're going to relate to each other in the faith. Nation, ideology. As long as we are gripped by ideology and nation as a people of God, we're going to be killing ourselves. And the evangelical killing fields will continue. And our witness in politics will be meaningless, broken, ineffective. Why? Why is it that we allow our ideology and nation to shape us like that? Well, I think uh, First Peter will help us. If you have your uh, sword, turn to First Peter, second chapter. It seems to me that the killing will not stop until we understand once more that we are people of God. And that we are part of his kingdom. Verse 13 of chapter 2 begins a section that is often quoted and studied 
when it comes to Christian political responsibility and witness. Beginning at 13th verse of chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of the believers. Fear God. Honor the king. There's much there. I just want to focus on two aspects. Freedom. Hey, what's freedom? What is freedom? We were talking about this uh, this morning in the cars. We went over and had a little bit of uh, breakfast before chapel. Hey, it's doing your own thing, right? What's it say here? Freedom means to be a servant of God. Freedom means to do God's thing. You see verse 16? Our freedom means that we live as servants of God. That means we have no option. We don't live as servants to our culture. We don't do the kinds of things that our culture does. The spirits that give shape to our public witness ain't what the culture tells us. What the Bible tells us. You see, uh, when foolish people look at us, what do they see in politics? They see people that don't look any different than the way other Americans do politics. Huh? Self-interest? Divided because of positions on issues? Hey, man, look at those Christians. They don't look any better than we do. I mean, they're doing the same thing we're doing. Are we silencing that foolish talk? I don't think so. I don't think so. Notice the next thing. Showing of proper respect. Loving the brotherhood. You see, our freedom is to be used as a witness to the reality of who the king is. It is his will that we are to be a servant of. Not the shape of our society or the spirits of ideology or nation that direct political witness. We have no option. We are to honor one another. Well, what makes that pattern possible in, this, in the power of ideology and nation that grips our hearts? Remembering once more who we are. Because, see, uh, Verse 9 precedes verse 13. Before our witness can begin to look like verse 13 and following, we have to read verse 9. What does verse 9 say? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We don't believe that. 
frankly, we think we're Americans. And we're probably, we think that we're sort of uh, special for that. Look at it, it goes on. It says, once, in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We don't believe that either. We knew who we were before we met Christ. We were Americans. Or maybe we were Irish. Or maybe we were uh, Greek. I don't know. Black, Chinese, whatever. That's where our identity is. See, the Bible says, no. You weren't a people before. In reality, in true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say, you were not a people. But now you are. Because you're part of the family of God. Our nationalism is in heaven, not in America. That is really the cutting edge. And it seems to me if we begin to understand where our citizenship really lies, it'll have three, at least three different characteristics. We will begin to see how it is, in fact, Christ-given by His grace. The second mark of our citizenship that it is a Christ hope. We live by faith in the light of the Christ hope. And finally, it is Christ-centered. That's the goal, the aim of our citizenship, Christ. You see, in verse 10, we see that we have received mercy. That is what makes us a people. Not our economic station, not our race, not our ethnic background, not where we live, California. God's mercy in Christ is what makes us the people. In Washington, D.C., there's a very funny thing that I've observed, and maybe it's been expressed here on campus. If two people meet in sort of a churchy situation, a church or a Bible study or a prayer group or something like that, for the first time, and that's the beginning of their relationship, they might discover, let's say, three months later, that, oh, my goodness, that person is a Democrat and I'm a Republican. Or, oh, how could that person be a liberal? I'm a conservative. Later, you begin to realize you have political differences. But the interesting thing is, because that first encounter was within a religious context, oftentimes the communication continues, despite the political differences. But what happens? What happens if your first encounter with somebody is political? You're arguing across the table with a Democrat and you're a Republican or vice versa. Or as a, as a liberal, you're talking to a you first meet person in a, in a debate and they're a conservative. Then later you find out they're a believer. It's very interesting. Your reaction is, that's impossible. How is that possible? And from then on, it is very difficult to establish a biblical relationship with that fellow believer. Because the ideology sort of grips our hearts. You see, why is that? Because fundamentally, we do not believe that who we are as a people is not from our own efforts, but as a gift of God through the mercy of Christ. You see, we want to, we want to build our unity. We want to establish the unity 
of the fellowship. And of course, we do it on our terms. <laughs> so ideology then becomes the basis for our union. Such presumption. To be able to stand at the foot of the cross and to say, well, really, what makes us one is that we agree on politics. Very recently, there was a Christian brother, an activist who was extremely critical of a book that came out by an author who was anti-abortion in his position, but wrote a book talking about the complexities and difficult situations that the question of abortion often arises in. And in that book, he suggested that there might be times when abortion would be the lesser of evils in a very difficult, complex, moral situation. This other believer, this activist, was so incensed that there was a breaking of ranks on this political issue that he mounted a massive campaign. And eventually that book was withdrawn from the original publisher, from Christian publishing houses. And that author has not yet recovered his reputation, either as a scholar or his standing as an evangelical in many circles. His reputation and his character have been damaged, perhaps in some circles beyond repair. Why? Because there was a disagreement on a political matter. No matter how important issues are, ideology can never determine the fact that we are one because we don't make ourselves one who does who did Christ his cross how dare we put something else in place of the cross especially our puny ideologies you see it's not a matter of taking seriously the importance of these questions it's a matter of keeping them in perspective we are made a people of God by the act of Christ, not by our own opinions, ideologies. What about this nation thing? We get some help from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. What's Hebrews chapter 11 about? Oh, any Bible made? Yes. What? I heard it. Faith. Right. We all should say that. What's Hebrews chapter 11 about? Faith. What's Hebrews chapter 11 about? Amen, that's right, faith. Now, he's gone through this uh, roll call of all these great people of the faith. And he gets to chapter 11, uh, verse 11. Excuse me, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. All these great people of the faith. They did not receive the things promised... They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Now, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Are we longing 
for a better country. You see, faith, faith in the promise, the Christ promise. We have already seen it. He's already come. We know he's coming again. And to live by faith is to live in the light of the Christ promise. The reality of that. And what does that do to us? It makes us a little bit tentative about our citizenship and anywhere else except the country of heaven. You see, once more is repeated the thing that Peter saw very clearly. Through the gift of Christ, we are made a nation. That's our nationality. Our country is in heaven, rooted in the kingdom of God. Not in America. Not in what we think that America is. Our nation is the holy nation of God. And we are a part of that by the gift of God. You see, as long as we are gripped in our political witness by our culture's values, of the perspective that says America first or America's interests are what need to determine how we relate to countries overseas. We will continue the evangelical killing fields. We can expect it as night follows the day. One time there was a brother who came uh, to Washington, in fact it was just three weeks ago, from Nicaragua. And uh, a Christian organization had put together a breakfast for him. And the Christians from across the political spectrum were invited to meet with this brother and to talk with him about Nicaragua. I met one of the folks, who, one of the brothers who was invited. I met him on the uh, street as I was going to class there in Washington. And we had a moment to talk about uh, the breakfast that was coming up. And I'm sad to report that the main point that this brother had to make as we talked there on the sidewalk, as we were talking about that breakfast that was coming up. His comment was, you just wait. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get that guy. Because that Nicaraguan brother, you see, was on the other side of the, the argument. What is that? Man, if, if that's not the evil one at work, Breaking the kind of relationships we ought to have one with the other. I'm going to get him. Is that the way we talk about sisters and brothers? Who are under the blood of Christ? Simply because of a national disagreement? Well, it is, isn't it? You see, how is, what is our patriotism like? If we're honest with ourselves. When I hear the national anthem, and I still get, you know, chills down on my back, etc., when I see the Capitol Dome, when something like that happens, what is it that's doing that to me? I've got to be very careful. Because I know deep down inside it's pride. I am proud to be an American. The most powerful nation on earth. An economic system, the wonder of the world. Freedom. People dying to come, literally. I'm proud to be an American. 
that is fundamentally unbiblical. What does the Bible say? Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. You see, fundamentally, we need to have a profound gratitude that by the grace of God, we live in America. But thankfulness is not the same as pride. And thankfulness does not lead to worshiping the spirits of ideology and nation. Pride does. How do we move beyond pride? It's hard, but let's look at uh, verse 16 here, Hebrews 11, second half of the verse I didn't read yet. Therefore, because these people were willing to look for a better country, therefore, it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That is absolutely amazing. The creator of the universe, not ashamed. But, is he ashamed of us? Are we seeking that better country? Are we sojourners and strangers in America? Or has the spirit of nation gripped our heart? You see, if we are to stop the killing, and if our political witness as evangelicals is going to have impact and silence foolish men, we need to move from the ideology, the conservative ideology that says the bottom line is individual freedom. We need to move from the liberal ideology that says the bottom line is economic equality to the biblical command to do justice. To see that righteousness is done. And to understand equality and freedom in the light of justice, biblical justice. Not in the light of our individualistic American culture. And if the killing is to stop, we need to move from the notion of America first, America right, to the biblical command of shalom. We are called to be peacemakers among peoples, among nations. Sisters and brothers, this is hard work <laughs> because we don't have a very good no idea of what justice and shalom mean. I mean, for one thing, we're fairly ignorant of the Bible. For another thing, we haven't allowed the Bible to grip our hearts. And to kick out the idols of nation and ideology. But justice and shalom are the starting points for our political witness. If we see those things first, I think the killing can stop. I think we will then have something to say to our country. I think we will then have something to say that's worth listening to and that can bring healing. That's difficult. Think of your own situation here on campus. I know everybody loves each other. 
at the Master's College. I know there are no political divisions, especially after the breakfast this morning. But think about that other student who really disagrees with you fundamentally on, say, abortion or homosexuality or anything that's hot and that gets you. Well, what about that faculty person who's always debunking your ideology, questioning it in class, challenging you? How do you relate to that person? It's hard. It's hard. But friends, let me suggest we start praying for that person. Not that they will change their ideology, but that you will begin to see Christ in them so you can love them. Then if you have enough courage in the Holy Spirit, go to that person and agree to pray together. Not about the ideology, not about the problem of nation, but about the fact that we are one because of what Christ has done. And then agree that you're going to continue to meet together. Maybe it's two or three of you. Maybe it's four or five of you. To meet together regularly. To continue to pray with each other. And not to... You know how we use these prayers? Oh, Lord, help Jim see the light in terms of his approach to Nicaragua. Help him to see that, you know. We don't need to play that game. But praying for one another, the Holy Spirit might open us up to the reality that we are one in Christ. And we do have the freedom in Christ to disagree on politics. And then agree that before you write that letter in the newspaper, the campus newspaper, that blasts this person. You're going to check it out to make sure that what you heard that person saying was true. Agree that you're going to do that. That before you go public with a criticism of that other person's position, you're going to make sure that you've got the facts. And allow that person to explain to you what they meant when they said what they said. And vice versa. And second, agree that you aren't, no matter how impassioned you are in terms of your differences politically or in your approach to America, that you will never, never, question the commitment of that other person to Christ in that context. That's hard work. But it can be done. Because Hebrews 12 shows the way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses here on campus and as an evangelical movement in the United States, as well as the angels in glory. We are surrounded by the foolish men of our culture and by our sisters and brothers. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, like ideology and nation. Throw them off and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us as a holy nation. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God bless you.